chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, one of the major motifs of the Bible is an idea that has been called the doctrine of the two ways. And I have alluded to it several times in our last few studies in the book of Romans. The best known statement of it is in the words of Jesus that are recorded in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The last section of the sermon lists a series of contrasts among which choices must be made. There are two gates, two roads, two trees, two types of fruit, two houses, two foundations. The part regarding the two ways says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The point is that a person can only be on one of these two roads, because the roads are going in entirely opposite directions. I am frequently amazed at people today, and I suppose a result of post-modernity thinking, who think that you can hold two ideas that are absolutely contradictory to each other in your mind and not a problem with it. One of the first rules of logic is that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. So if I say to you, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you say to me, oh, yes, Jesus, of course, and Krishna. You can't do that. You, no, I, I just, you can't do that. But people apparently can. But the Bible makes it clear that the, the options are limited to one of two ways. The classic statement of that doctrine, perhaps, is found in Psalm 1, uh, which describes the points that, Jesus, or that Paul is making here in Romans 6. Describes two categories of people, the wicked and the righteous. And the psalm shows a progression within each of these two categories. On the one hand, there is progression in wickedness. Those in the first category began by walking in the counsel of the wicked. And then they stand in the way of sinners. And finally, they sit in the seat of the mockers. In other words, they become in increasingly settled in ungodliness and in their practice of it. Moreover, their lives bear no fruit. They are like barren plants, the chaff that the wind blows away. On the other hand, there is progression in godliness. The righteous man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and he produces lasting fruit. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, from a spiritual standpoint, prospers. Now, some people take that and turn it around and say, oh, well, if you're a Christian, you ought to be a billionaire. That's not what it's saying. Whatever you do spiritually in following the Lord will prosper. And finally, the psalm 
gives the ends of these two types of people. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They're sinners in the assembly of the righteous. When the judgment comes, they will not be able to stand because they have no standing. So they will be judged by God. And then the company of the righteous, we are told of them uh, that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The end of the righteous is eternal life. The end of the wicked is judgment. Now, it should be evident that that is exactly what Paul is saying in these two verses with his slavery analogy, although doesn't speak of anyone collecting by the gates of the city or of scattering useless chaff at harvest time, but the idea is the same. Uh, he describes two different pathways. The first path starts with slavery to sin. That's the condition that every human being is born in. All men are born as slaves to sin. Sin is our cruel master drives us alone. And by ourselves, we are unable to escape the tyranny of sin. I said a couple of weeks ago that, that licentiousness and legalism are just two sides of the same coin. It is living a life in the flesh. And both of them are equally sinful. The person who thinks that by their good works, they can attain heaven, and the person who cares nothing about morality or living any kind of moral life. The two are exactly the same. They're both living in the flesh. This section of Romans, we're talking about living for God. We're talking about sanctification and obedience. But never forget what we learned in chapter 4. That is, we have believed God, and that has been credited to us as righteousness. What, what Jesus Christ has accomplished is reckoned to us as righteous. After you have been justified, you add nothing before our act. We contribute nothing but our sin to our justification. So if you are justified, come into the kingdom of God, let's say at age 12, probably many of you did, and you live a righteous life until you're 104, that's great, that's how we're supposed to live, but you don't add anything to your justification by that righteous life. Don't confuse justification and sanctification. When, when James talks about Abraham being justified by his works. Three verses earlier, he talks about Abraham being justified by faith in God. Thirty years later, he's justified before men by his works. He obeys God. He didn't add anything to his justification. He proved it. That's what Paul is saying here. A righteous life doesn't add anything to your justification. It proves you have it proves that you have been justified because now you are seeking to walk in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, our sin, we're told in verse 19, leads to impurity and to lawlessness. Impurity refers to sin as it affects the individual, personal defilement, particularly those sins that are opposed to chastity. Lawlessness refers to divine or human laws. The end of this destructive path is death. Paul mentions three times in this section, verses 16, 21, and 23. Now that's not just physical death, since both the righteous and the wicked experience physical death. But he's talking about the full penalty of sin. To be separated from God forever. To be eternally separated from God. In the sense that you are under his wrath and under his judgment. So, when we looked at verses 15 through 18, we saw that Paul gives these two, and only these two, options. Either you are enslaved to sin and free with regard to righteousness, resulting in eternal death, or you are freed from sin and enslaved to God, resulting in sanctification and eternal life. saying, look, I know this analogy is not perfect. Uh, there's some things about it that, that you will find repugnant, but just hang on. Because the principle that he is eludicating is clear. For, the word for goes on to explain the valid part of the analogy, namely that as we formally presented our members as 
slave to sin. Now we should present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. Present. That repeats Paul's command of verse 13 where he said, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Present your ears, your eyes, your tongue, your hands, your feet as instruments of righteousness. Uh, the verb present means to give oneself as a servant or a slave. He says do it now. Now is important. Now that Christ has come, now that atonement has been made, now that we have a new identity, now that we are living in a time of eschatological significance, we are in the last days, the biblical writers say, and that's the time for the resurrection, the ascension, until Jesus comes again. Those are the last days. Uh, so we must live differently. Because we're living in a day of grace when we can no when we can no longer live as a slave to sin. We have the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable us to live as a slave to righteousness. Paul says that we should be characterized with a single-minded dedication that characterized us before we came to Christ. When we dedicated ourselves to idols like money and self and pleasure and power, we repeatedly gave ourselves to those false gods. Now, he says, we are to have that same single-minded dedication in presenting ourselves to the one true God to serve Him. If you go the slave of sin route, leads toward eternal death because Paul contrasted with eternal life. A life of enslavement to sin leads to eternal spiritual death where you will experience the wrath of a holy God for all of eternity. Spiritual death is the justly earned wage of a life of slavery to sin. I say to you, look, I'm going to give you this box, genuine cash, 
magnanimity of God in this whole thing. And he says it's a free gift. Verse 23. It is a free gift. Remember that God is described, Paul is describing here a process, not a once-for-all decision that somehow catapults you into a sinless life. You know, there's idea that sanctification is, is just by doing the best I can. You know, that's all up to me. No, it's by grace too. Yes, it requires your effort. Yes, it requires you working at it. But it comes by grace. It is by the every day I try to preach the gospel to myself. Every day. Because it is the power of God in the to overcome temptation. God will give me grace to understand the Bible. God will give me grace to share the gospel with those who are lost. God will give me grace to obey. That grace is available. So the first step to winning over sin, Paul says, is to present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Then he says, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. All of us at one time were slaves of sin, but it was not an unbelief of slavery. They keep doing it because they like it. 
They like sinning more than they like righteousness. The only way you can stop liking sin is if God gives you a new nature. He regenerates you by new birth. Then when you have a different nature, you don't like sin. That's the one thing about becoming a Christian is you can't like sin anymore. You'll still sin, but you just don't like it. You don't get the pleasure out of it you once did. Test, we can test ourselves by that. Am I increasingly hating sin? My sin, not yours, mine. If we don't have the new birth, we'll just keep doing what we like. Paul says, when you gave yourself over to lawlessness and impurity, it didn't satisfy your needs. Just crave To meet your lust with a little bit of pornography is like pouring gasoline on a fire. You can't satiate your lust that way. It won't work. You'll just burn stronger and stronger. Slaves of sin do not manage their sin for their own enjoyment. Rather, it is a dominates and destroys. Your particular sin is greed. Then hoarding up money and possessions is not going to help you overcome that. Well, if I just save just a little bit more, you know, then that'll be good. Nothing wrong with saving. That's fine. Unless it is destroying your soul because you love money more than you love God. Stuff's okay. I like my stuff. It becomes more important than people. It becomes more important than God. You made an idol out of it. So in verse 21, Paul says, think about it. What benefit have you received from the sin that you committed in your pre-conversion days? The answer that is implied is nothing at all. Didn't make you happy. will be because sin deceives us well if you didn't get anything from yielding to sin before you were converted why would you yield to sin now he says verse 22 but now that you have been set free from sin have become slaves of God
those who yield themselves as slaves to God get sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. Your spiritual condition right now is due to a great change that God has made in Notice the words, but now. But now. Under the reign of grace through righteousness. You were slaves of sin, but now you've been freed from sin. Paul often will draw this sharp contrast between our former life and what God has done for us in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, he's speaking of the Gentiles, and he says of them they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now you have a blessed hope. Now you're no longer a stranger to the covenants of promise. Now all the promises of God are yours in Christ. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, where he says you were formerly darkened. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Our new position is we've been set free from sin. The command of verse 19 rests on the fact of verse 18, which is repeated in verse 22. God has freed you from sin, made you a slave of righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's our new position. Stuff for the sake of stuff 
walking in. 